you've been in this business long enough, you have some talent. You have a degree of talent. So the talent is not the issue. The ability to play well with others is. I find that I want people to be like, oh, what's up, James? James is here. Oh, my God. I didn't know you were in the show. Like, that's what I want. Right. I don't want to be like, oh, God. Oh, he's in this? Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Part inspiration, part education, the whole artist with Courtney Rue. Be your best you. Welcome to The Whole Artist with Courtney Rue, conversations with artists about acting, purpose, and the journey to finding wholeness. And today I'm talking to James Vincent Meredith, born in Chicago, raised in Evanston, now residing in Oak Park. James is proud to call Illinois and the Midwest his home. His body of work spans film, television, and theater. His feature credits include Widows, the 2018 crime thriller starring Viola Davis, Princess Sid, and Knives and Skin. In television, he was a series regular as Opal Rackley in Fargo, my fellow paramedic Barry Vaughn on NBC Chicago Med, and as Alderman Ross on Boss for Stars, as well as guest star appearances on Proven Innocent, Exorcist, Shameless, and Betrayal. Meredith has been a member of Chicago's Steppenwolf Theater Company for over a decade. Broadway credits include Superior Donuts and the long-running musical Book of Mormon. So I'm going to keep this intro short because James and I talked for 90 minutes in November and 30 minutes this week because I didn't ask enough questions about Fargo because it wasn't finished yet and I hadn't seen the whole season. And once I finished, I was like, I need to talk to James again. And I'm so glad we did. We go from third grade to being a series regular in Fargo. And I love what James has to say about imposter syndrome, being a good team player, and talking openly and honestly about the side of this business that makes us feel less than. He tells some amazing stories about the stars he's worked with, like Rain Wilson, Chris Rock, Timothy Oliphant, and even ScarJo makes a cameo. Okay, quick disclaimer before we begin. James has a really great mic setup, and when we recorded in November, I just broke in my ankle, so I was in the middle of a room with my leg propped up. My sound, especially compared to his, is not great, but I appreciate your forgiveness. I thought about re-recording everything I said, but that was crazy, so please enjoy James Vincent Meredith. This is so exciting. I know. I'm excited. I can't remember the last time I did any sort of a podcast. So, like, I hope I give you something lucid. <laughs> you know, before we get to Steppenwolf, Broadway, network TV, feature films, all that stuff, I would love for you to tell me about young James Vincent Meredith. How did you get into acting? Oh, gosh. The short version or the long version? We'll see. <laughs> Well, it started in third grade. No, for real, it actually did. That's when I did my first show. That's uh, awesome. I think I played an alien at Lincolnwood High School in Evanston, complete with aluminum foil head and, you know, the dealy boppers and all that stuff. And I, I think I was always a bit of a, um, gosh, very similar to my son now that I think back, kind of a class clown to a degree, eager to try and make friends. And sometimes that came off as being kind of socially awkward, I think, as all kids are, I suppose, at some point. Anyway, I got into it really seventh grade through a drama teacher at uh, King Lab in Evanston who said, there's a show that's going on at Northwestern University. They're doing Raisin in the Sun, and it's going to be awesome. And you could be the child, Travis. And I was like, that sounds crazy cool, you know. So I went out for it. I got it. And Harry Lennox was in it. He played Bobo. I remember that. Fun fact, years later, my first show as a union actor, I ended up playing in Raisin in the Sun at Goodman Theater. And Harry Lennox was Walter. Oh, so wow. Full very circle. crazy. Yeah, very crazy. Anyway. 
So that was my first theater thing, so to speak. I did a lot of work with Piven Theater when I was younger up in Evanston, worked with them all through high school, went to college, majored in English because I thought my parents didn't want me to do anything that dealt with theater. Now, come to find later, they probably could have cared less as long as I was in school. I got out of that. I'll say I attended college. I won't say I graduated. Came up and uh, started just working here in Chicago doing, you know, just non-union, get in where I fit in kind of stuff. Joined the union in 2000, and that's kind of where it began. I heard that you were a company member with Child's Play Touring Theater Company. Yeah. Do you? <laughs> no, Two I don't say yeah. I don't say yeah. Like, oh, I mean, yeah. Like, how did you know that? Wow. There's. Two funny stories about that. One of my first jobs outside of school was with Child's Play Touring Company. Wow. And uh, I'm wondering what years you were involved with Child's Play. So I joined Child's Play Touring Theater in 95, fall of 95. Okay. And I left probably around, gosh, 98, 1998. I remember I was doing one of those non-union, non-traditional, quote unquote, get some people of color in there to audition sort of thing over at maybe the Bailiwick or somewhere. And I'm doing this this audition and I finish the audition and I run out. The dear late Victor Potagrossi runs out after me into the lobby. He was at the time, you know, the, the head of Child's Play. And he said, hey, we'd really love to get you in and offer your position. And I was like, you know, I was kind of feeling myself. I'd just done this audition. I got this director running out after me. I'm like, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I'm going to try and see what happens. You know, and I tried to play it like that. And he's like, well, you know, you could see what happens and you could keep auditioning and, and all of that, or you could eat. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he kind of put it down to brass tacks. And I was like, yeah, okay. And I got it. And that was really three years of my life. And I remember thinking at the time, I think we made maybe $318 a week. But it was really neat because I had health insurance. I had a regular gig. I was able to travel. To this day, like, I, I'm a huge, huge fan of Dear Victor and Child's Play. And I have friends, like, now that I look back on who are, like, dear friends of mine who I met at Child's Play. And so the chance to meet those people... Janet Brooks. I don't know if you know Janet. <gasps> yeah. Mm -hmm. I was hoping you were going to say a little earlier, a Child's Play came to my elementary school. I wrote a story with my friends that got chosen to be performed. It was called Joshua and the Egg. I was like, oh my God, what if James Vincent Meredith was Joshua? <laughs> you remember, um, I don't know if you ever watched The Simpsons, but there was this episode where the kids are watching this great yo-yo team. They're like superstar yo-yo kids, you know, and it's the best assembly ever, you know, and it's really <laughs> awesome. And then at the very end, their handler's like, get in the van. <laughs> he like locks them in the van. <laughs> And they're like cowering in the corner with their yo-yos. Okay, maybe that's not child's play, but it always makes me think of like, it was really amazing to the kids when we were there. And then we we kind of did the non-glamorous part of, you know, loading up the road boxes and getting it all into the van and driving four hours to the next place. Totally. It was the coolest feeling in the world to have my story be chosen and to be performed in front of my whole school. And then when I got offered to replace someone when I was 20 something years old, I was like, yes, this is so cool. I get to do this. But then you're right. It's like, you see the dark underbelly of children's theater. That said, great memories, you know, really a, yeah. a fun experience. My good friend, Daryl, my friend, Daryl was our music director. Daryl Barber? Yes. Look, 
Courtney, that's my dude. <laughs> that's my dude. I want to talk about Piven a little bit and like you growing up in Evanston in Chicago. What was that experience like for you? You know, I was that kid who got up at 5.45 to be at a 6.30 morning chorus rehearsal before school. And I'd stay until after school and then I'd have like a rehearsal for some show, you know, at the high school. So I spent a lot of time there, but I also found time for Piven. I usually would meet with them on the weekends. You know, I did different classes and eventually the Young People's Company with them. I'll never forget. I'm sitting in the lobby at Noise Cultural Arts Center, which is where Piven is, and I'm talking with Joyce Piven, and my, my mother's there, and this is really early on. I want to say maybe 84 or something like that. I think John Cusack just kind of saunters by, like on his way to something, and um, I'm starstruck, like stunned. Now, my mother doesn't know who he is, but I certainly know who he is. And I turn back to Joyce and I'm like, is that? And she's like, yes, that's John Cusack. And I'm just like, holy crap, this is where I have to be. I got to be here. Yeah. And, and it wasn't even so much because I wanted to be where John Cusack was. It was because I got a chance to see John Cusack. <laughs> John Cusack and, you know, all those guys. So I started working there again. I did like a summer kind of workshop where I was there maybe four days a week and I got to meet a lot of kids who were from all over the North Shore. And so that kind of opened me up, I think, to a lot of things that perhaps I didn't have that I, I admired that other rich, wealthy kids from the North Shore had. And I'd come in and I'd have my peanut butter and jelly sandwich and chips or whatever. And it wasn't like I, I grew up poor. I had a I never wanted for anything. But then there'd be a guy or a gal who'd come up from, you know, down from Winnetka or something, and they'd have this cool Acura hatchback, and they'd eat at the pizza place across the street, which was really awesome. And, and they just had kind of a, it was a different world. That's the thing I guess I remember from Piven early on, just kind of being opened up to, to other people, I guess, from other backgrounds who didn't really, certainly didn't look like me, and, you know, just came from a different economic strata. Piven was like a real melding of all those kind of backgrounds and people because Piven was it. Not like it was the only school, but it was a very highly regarded school back then. You had a lot of people who came from Winnetka, Glencoe, Barrington, all these places. And we were all in this room, you know, for four hours a day or five hours a day, and we learned everything. That's kind of where I really got a foundation as far as feeling comfortable, I guess, in my body. And, and realizing that not every improv had to end in like gut-splitting laughter. For them, it was really more of telling a story and, and not needing a script to tell it. And it didn't have to end in a swear or some violent act or something like that for it to really be effective. When did you become a Steppenwolf ensemble member? So that was 2007, I believe. It was a crazy time. I was doing The Bluest Eye. We were in New York. And I was working with just some great actors, Libya Pugh and Alana Arenas, and really a great group of people. And I remember looking on call boards in New York at the time and just feeling really depressed because I was doing this show that was in New York and I should have been like on top of the world, like super happy and all I could think of. And, and unfortunately, that's kind of our business. You're always thinking of the next gig. What's the next gig? I didn't know what the next gig was. And I remember coming home from that kind of sad. I think I got something out at, um, I think it was the King and I with wonderful Joe Ferranda and Mary Ernster. And I think that was out of Drury Lane in Oak Brook. 
Nice. But after that, I had nothing going on and I was kind of sad and we're getting our kitchen or our bathroom redone. So we couldn't even really stay in our apartment at the time. It was just uh, no good. So in the midst of all of that, I get an email from Martha Levy that says, what are you doing shortly after the new year? I'd love to have a conversation with you. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> no, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm busy that day. I'm out of town. Um, do I need to prepare anything? No, nothing to prepare. I was kind of nervous. I had previously done a show with Anna Shapiro, Anna Barford at Steppenwolf's main stage, Pain in the Itch, with a great cast. But that was like my only time on the main stage. I didn't know what to expect from this meeting. And so I go in and Anna's there in the room. And Martha says, we'd love to make you a member of our, our ensemble. And I was just stunned, just stunned. I wish I could say there was some rhyme or reason to it. As you know, like Steppenwolf, like they just see who they think they want and that's who they want. And I remember being so honored to go in with that class of ensemble members. I mean, that was Aura Jones, whose work I'd admired forever. John Hill, who was brand new, really. I'd seen him once on Steppenwolf stage. It was great. Jan Barford, I think, was there. Kate Arrington, Alana. I think there were like five or six of us that went in. It was kind of surreal that day. And I remember thinking immediately, I... I want to make sure that they know that they made the right choice. Yeah. You know? And so that was kind of in my head for that first couple of years. Did you have a form of like imposter syndrome when you first started? 100%. Yeah. And I remember the first show I was cast in as an ensemble member was Crucible, was John Proctor in Crucible. Was Kelly in that? Yes, she was. Kelly was yes, selling? she was. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Kelly was my Abigail. Yeah. We had a couple of awesome scenes. That's how I met Kelly. Who nice. is awesome. I heard y'all's interview and I'm a huge fan of hers. So that was the first show that I did there. And I remember really feeling very, very nervous about it. I was happy because Anna was directing because I'd worked with her before. But it was very surreal because at the time, August Osage County had gotten gigantic and hadn't gone to Broadway yet, but they were getting ready to go to Broadway. Even though Crucible was kind of an all hands on deck ensemble piece. A lot of those people were going to be leaving, including my goody Proctor, who was Sally Murphy. And so it's kind of a weird time of upheaval, transition, new show. People are coming, people are going. And I even remember before rehearsal, talking to a friend of mine, we were talking a little bit about the play. And this is when I kind of felt that real imposter, like I got something to prove thing because I said, yeah. Um, and I think uh, Aura's in it and she's playing um, Tituba. And he's like, oh, Tituba. Yeah. And it was a very, it was a very uncomfortable kind of pause there. And I, I could, I could kind of tell, and I read into stuff sometimes, I get it, but I could tell that he was kind of letting me know that I didn't really know what I was doing at that point. I didn't really know who was in the show. I didn't really know how to even pronounce these guys. It made me feel that I needed it was very important to me to make a good impression in this show and not so much just a good impression for other people who are coming to see the show, but my own kind of good impression to me to let myself know that I belonged on that stage. And so that was a very, um, very kind of emotionally tough period for me, but I was never so happy as, as when I'd come out at the very end and, and, and feel like I, I gave a really good show on that day or that night or whenever. 
Does that imposter syndrome ever go away? Do you feel different than you did back then? <laughs> so the correct answer is, no, there's no correct answer. But the answer that I think a lot of people would expect one to hear is, yeah, no, I mean, now I just think about my own work. And, you know, the good thing is I don't really give two craps about what other people think and all this other stuff. And But that's not true. I think there's always a bit of, even if it's not like directly imposter syndrome, like just the idea of needing to kind of, to a degree, prove myself each time out, whether it's a play, whether it's, you know, a reading, whether it's these Zoom readings that we all do now. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel like there's a level of professionalism that I have to have when I come in. And, you know, anyone who knows me who's been through the rehearsal process with me knows that, like, I always come in sounding deadly serious because I'm trying to set a standard. And then by the time closing comes, I'm just cracking up like everybody else. And, and my voice has gone back up to where its normal register is. And who cares, you know, but at the very beginning, there's always, particularly at the beginning of rehearsals, like I always feel like I need to do, I always do too much in the first rehearsal. And over the years, I've started to realize like, this is not a finished product. We literally have just got here to read this show. And so, you know, it's different from camera where you kind of go in and there's no rehearsal and you got to be ready to roll, you know? And so I've kind of given myself some grace in that respect. That said, it's been a while since I've been on stage. It's been a while since any of us have been on stage. And so yeah. I am quite sure that whenever that time comes again, where I am in a room, oh, please let it be sometime soon. I'll have those nerves. I know I will. And you know what? The good thing is I think everyone will have those nerves because it will yes. have been so long since any of us have seen each other and been on stage. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I heard that you have a fear of musical theater. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> but you do musical theater, or I, you did. I did a musical. There's a difference. <laughs> Wait, I, I feel like you've done two. Didn't you say you did The King and I? Didn't have to sing. Okay. I, I, I did the et cetera at the end of the acts. That's about all I had to do. So, you know, I was kind of laying in the cut for most of the time, just taking it easy. I was the crawler home. I don't know if you know the play. He doesn't really do much singing. He just kind of stands around and looks at yeah. me. Yeah, but did you sing in Book of Mormon? Yes, I did. So my theater agent is Sam and also Jim at Stuart Talent. I remember Sam sending me a script for Book of Mormon and saying, look, I know you don't do musicals. I know you don't do musicals, but you <laughs> got to at least just read this. He's like, the vocal demands are not very much. They're not looking for a singer who acts. They're looking for an actor who can carry a note, who can sing. And um, I was like, all right, whatever. All right, Sam. So I read it. I cracked up from beginning to end of that script. It's crazy funny, super smart. Oh, um, so funny and smart. And um, and the one song I had, you know, under duress, I could hit the note. So so, <laughs> so I was like, all right, I'll jump in. I'll, I'll give it a go. So I go to the audition. I just sang the song and I did uh, one scene or something. I got a call back. Uh, and the first audition was, I think, in front of like two people. And then the second audition was in front of like seven or eight people. And, and then my agent, Sam, said, well, that's it. If you get called again, they'll probably want to fly you out to meet the creators or they'll come here or um, something. But right now they're just sending the tape so you won't get cast off the tape. I got cast off the tape. Oh, my God. And so I kept thinking, talk about imposter syndrome. Right. Courtney. So first rehearsal, right? I'm in New York City. I'm at 42nd Street Studios. 
I'll never forget because at the time, I think Scarlett Johansson was doing View from the Bridge and she was rehearsing in the same building. And I remember being on the elevator with her and it was so clear that I was nervous out of my mind, <laughs> not only to see her, but just yeah. to be in the building. And she said, uh, how about this weather, huh? And I was like, <laughs> I get starstruck too. I would have done the same thing. And her handler, you could tell, was used to this and was just like, she was like, just let him, <laughs> let him leave the elevator. But I remember just being so nervous being in that room and being around like, these are people who are triple threat. They went to school for it. They went to Cincinnati and they went to Carnegie Mellon and they went to all these schools that are like very, very highly thought of as far as musical theater. And a lot of them are coming just literally right out of the gate. Some of them from school. The guy who played Elder Price had already been on Broadway and he agreed to do this tour, national tour. And the other guy, Ben Platt, I don't know if you know him. Oh, I've never heard of him. No. Yeah, he's done a few things. Um, but at the time, brand new, right? I mean, he'd done Pitch Perfect and he is just a giant, like as far as his work and his voice and all of that. He's incredible. I mean, I think he, he was 19 maybe or something like that. Just a young dude. But his work had so kind of transformed the play that they even recast a few things as a result because he completely kind of broke the mold for what they wanted Cunningham to be. And so I was super nervous. We're learning music on the first day. Only everyone else knows the music already because they all know how to read music. I don't read music. And so I'm sidling up to General Butt-Fucking-Naked because General Butt-Fucking-Naked has already been on Broadway. And so he knows the score. And so I'm like, I'll kind of hang close to the general and kind of pick it up because we're both bases and I eventually I'll get it. Two days later, after all that, and I'm pulling my hair out. I call Sam and I say, Sam, I don't think this is going to work. And he's like, no. Just just breathe. I'm like, no, no, I don't think it's going to work. I'm outside of PAX, you know, on 42nd next to the, the Duke. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I literally am starting from minus zero, you know. And he's like, look, I'll set you up with my guy. He's a vocal coach on the Upper East Side. Just get through the week. Just get to Sunday. That saved me. That did save me because my my agent just literally talked me off of the cliff. So I held on until Sunday. Monday, he set me up with this music guy that he knew on the Upper East Side. And that gentleman plunked out every single note that I sing in the show. Everything. Nose to tail. And after that, I felt, okay, I can, I think I can get my mind around the music. And then I had to learn how to dance. <laughs> so that was a whole other thing. But I'll finish the story up by saying that Kathy, my wife, came and visited me, and we're sitting in some restaurant on the last day of rehearsal in New York before we go to Chicago to begin tech. I open up my email, and uh, she's like, what's wrong? She's like, it looks, did someone die? And it kind of felt like it had because two of our four top principals were replaced, like literally the day before our last day in New York before we go to Chicago and really good people. Like it was not a talent issue. Like they were great. And, um, and I kept looking for my name because oh my God. I was like, how is my name not on this list? Because my voice is, was not great. 
I was doing more rapping than singing, let's be honest, at the time. And um, my dancing was suspect. It was tough. And I didn't see my name. And I was like, I guess they want to keep me. I don't know why, but I guess they want to keep me. So major imposter syndrome there. Yeah. I came in, did the show, and it was one of the best things in my life up to that point. Traveling the country, traveling the country with our new, you know, four-month, five-month at the time, old child, Kathy and Evan were with me. It was a it was a huge, just amazing two to three years. Wow. So you've been married 18 years? Yes. And you have a seven-year-old. Yes. Evan, so yeah. you'd, you'd been married a while before you had kids. How did you make the decision to have a kid? And did that change your career at all? We made the decision to have a kid about two years after we got married. So... <laughs> It took a long time for Evan to come. But when he did come, it really did change everything. It changed. I remember people would always say, oh, no, dude, when you have a child, like, it literally, like, your priorities are changed and, you know, what's important is different and you'll see. And I'm like, man, come on, dude. I'm a bit selfish. I, I, I am totally selfish. And then Evan came and everything changed. Like, it's really true. I still have some selfish bones in my body. I'm not going to lie about that. Like, none of it's really for me anymore. It's literally my family. Like, that's it. He's the best thing that ever happened to me. Seriously. Like, I don't think Kathy would be insulted by that statement because she'd probably say the same thing. Yeah. It didn't change my work. I guess if it changed anything, it changed my nerves a little bit, I guess. I care a lot more, certainly, about what the next gig is so that my family is you know, that we're okay. And it's not dependent on me. My wife's an awesome teacher and she does very well, but I'm a lot more concerned about kind of the whole house, I guess, than being so concerned, I guess, about myself like I used to be. Yeah. Some people say that it changes the pressure of booking the job in that you, there's more important things in life. Do you feel like that happened or is there more pressure because you have someone to take care of and provide for? Huh. That's a good question. I... I think there's still pressure, but the reasons are different. Like to me, the, the pressure is because I want to go and do cool stuff with my family. And the only way that I can really go and do really cool stuff with my family is if I do work. And so the work becomes very important trying to get the gigs so that I can have the time with my family to travel and do cool stuff together. But as far as the stress, once I'm on the gig, it's not quite as much as it used to be. I find myself being more concerned about what's next and how I get us to our next vacation or our next place or our next cool thing or, you know, that sort of thing. You've worked with a lot of big stars in your career. Do you get as nervous with them as you do with Scarlett Johansson in the elevator? <laughs> like right now you're working with Chris Rock, right? Right. Um there was a bit of nerves kind of at the beginning, certainly in that, you know, with Chris, because, you know, I've done, and you've done these shows too, where you, you come into the room and, and the most important person, like they run the room. Like you can say, everyone places, come on, let's all be quiet. Let's settle down, settle down. And that person can, they can be having a conversation with you or they can be putting away their phone or checking a text, though Chris didn't do this. But I've been on sets where that person knew that they were the most important person in the room. 
and they would talk to me like they were telling me a joke or something. And I'd, I'm trying not to respond too much because everyone is looking at us waiting for us to go. But that person knows they're the most important person in the room. And so, yeah. and, and again, not Chris, but in other situations where I've been, where I've been like, it's kind of a fine line you walk. And, but that said, thinking about Fargo, for example, I just saw an episode with Timothy Oliphant and I had a kind of a brief scene with him. And then there's something else that happens in, in the scene. And I just remember him talking probably a whole page, page and a half of dialogue. We did it maybe... 16 times and they changed it on him. They changed a word here or there or a sentence or something here or there. He didn't mess up once. He was a Timex, like a Seiko. Like he just did not. And always in like, that's, what's really cool about acting with some of these actors who've been doing it for a while, who are really pros, who are kind of at the top of their game and just seeing how they work. And, you know, I'm the type who's like, ah, I'm in the corner and I'm trying to figure out ah, what's that line. And, ah, I've got to, you know, ah, you know, I'm the tense guy in the corner. Right. <laughs> um, and Timothy Elephant, he's hanging out. We're chatting. He's talking to us about Mandalorian and all this stuff, you know. Nice. And, and then they're like, ready, sound, or reset, picture, all that, and action. And he sinks in and he gives you the exact same performance, only with a little bit of a twinge that makes you think a little more. So you don't really quite know what's coming. But as far as his timing, his words, his phrasing, just right down the fairway. I've acted with a lot of really great, great superstar, awesome actors who are awesome, but Watching someone like that work was pretty amazing, like really, really stunning. Kelsey Grammer, I remember being that way too. Like he could be doing anything else, checking texts, doing whatever. And then they'd say action for boss. And he'd, he'd just, he'd hit it every time. What was Rain Wilson like? Just a blast. Just That show was so much fun. That was one of my favorite experiences on that stage. Like I'd say as far as shows to be a part of, at Steppenwolf, Doppelganger, and um, what's the other one? The Tempest that Frank Galati was Prospero in, directed by Tina. Those are probably my most just alive shows that I was ever a part of. And with Rain, you know, he's he's one of those dudes who's literally always trying to break you, and he usually succeeds. Like, always. Like, and it got to the point where, and you can ask anyone who's in the show, they'll totally tell you, like, I was his easiest mark. Like, nice. my first entrance, I come in and I'm in the wheelchair and it's a motorized wheelchair and it's really cool. And I come in and he looks at me and he has this little gleam in his eye and I'm already breaking and he hasn't even talked to me yet. It's because I know what's coming. Yeah. And Towards the end of that run, I could barely get through the scenes with him because he's just got the knack. But just a fun guy, really cared about all of us. He hung out with us. He was a good dude, but also a very grounded soul. Yeah. You did Boss, and you've done Fargo, and Princess Sid with Stephen Cohn, a lot of shows with Steppenwolf, The Book of Mormon, all, all these shows. It doesn't, to me, from an outsider, it doesn't feel like you've been typecast at all. Do you feel like you've gotten to play a wide variety of characters? I think I have. I feel like it's kind of a challenge when I think of camera. Camera's so tough just because a lot of the things that I've gone out for through a uh, kind of a three or four, five-year stretch were, you know, they were police officers, detectives, 
some sort of law associated role. I've been kind of really happy that Fargo came along. I was really happy when Boss was around just because they were different characters. They were a bit more not what I was used to playing. And I enjoy that. As far as theater, I've been really lucky in that I've been able to play a wide variety of things. And I wouldn't call myself extraordinarily versatile, but directors have really trusted me with their vision of certain things. And they've trusted me to to go and try different things with roles that maybe 15 years ago, I wouldn't have taken the leap as much to do. I did feel typecast years back. Not so much, not so much, knock on wood, not so much. Do you think that comes with age or do you think that comes with the times of people being more aware? I think that I'm getting a lot more auditions for things that I wouldn't have gotten auditions for two years ago, mm-hmm. three years ago. I think a lot of that has to do with with Hollywood. I'm not going to say waking up. I'm going to say being more cognizant of the fact that, you know, Black people spend money too. Yeah, <laughs> and we want, right. They're not doing it because they're conscious human beings. Yeah, and we don't just spend it all on the shows that you think we spend it on. We, we, we want to see ourselves in a variety of different professions and worlds and, and emotional arcs and character arcs. And, and it's so weird because, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, people were saying the same thing when there'd be like a, a bit of a shift towards more quote-unquote diverse casting. And then 10 years later, we'd be saying the same thing, you know? So right. So it's like, what happens this time? You know, like, it's, it's certainly in vogue right now. I'm doing a lot of air quotes. It seems to be very of the moment to cast things as diverse as possible. And that's, that's great. But I want to know where we are five years from now. Like, I want to know where we are three years from now. I want to know if... Because perhaps the political conversation has changed if it means that things go back to the status quo. I don't know. But I think that I'm certainly getting a lot more work. Part of that is age, I think. Part of it is a little bit more ease with what I can and can't do and being okay with that. I think that helps me to go into an audition not prejudging things as much as perhaps I would have in years past and and just going and thinking, you know, they might really just... They really might want me here. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, I've struggled with that so much. Like they they really might. Yeah. They they actually might want to see me for this, and yeah, and that is a hard. Like you said, you've struggled with it. It's a hard thing to to perhaps calm yourself and give yourself the freedom to believe. I remember when you were on set for Chicago Med playing Barry and. You said something to me, do you remember this? Where I was like, oh, you're so lucky you get to have like a story arc. Uh, my character just comes in and like says some words and leaves. <laughs> do you remember what I, you said You know to me? what's funny about this? Did I say this or did someone else say this to me? I can't remember. But I remember thinking, no, that's that's not good. You're going to be on the show long after I'm gone. Uh-huh. The reason is because you don't have a romantic arc. Yep. Like you come in, you do your thing. You can trust Courtney, her character. She's in, she's out. She'll be back in next week. But Barry, you know, Barry's Barry's tied to someone, you know, he's tied to wonderful Marlene Barrett. So my future is kind of connected with her. And once she's done with me, the show's done with me. <laughs> so I was like, I knew yeah. back then. I was like, this is really great, but I'm here on borrowed time. You'll be here long after I'm gone. 
And what are we right now? How many years is that? <laughs> Five. Oh, going on six. Yeah. Well, for Chicago Med, I mean, for fire, that was a couple of years before. So it's, it's been a long time. You know, I struggle with that imposter syndrome on set all the time. It, not so much anymore, but in the beginning of like, do they actually want me here? And six years in, I've, I've learned they want me there. So it's much better. But I do have also that imposter syndrome of like, I'm not really a good actor because I don't have that arc. I don't have that storyline. I'm so grateful for the job and the money and the experience and being around all these amazing actors. But at the same time, I have that struggle of like, does this mean this is all they can do? Huh. Besides being a good actor, I think there's also something to be said, and I've tried to buy into this a lot more as I've the longer I've been in the career, it's baseball. It's being a good clubhouse guy. And it's like that person, they do their job. They're good at their job. And they're good to have around because they just make things go smoother. And I think that that is a huge thing that you probably have gotten there as far as like, like your equity, your talent comes with, for them comes not from not only just being able to do all that doggone technical verbiage, which I was never good at, which is why I had to go into ADR, like literally every episode because I, didn't <laughs> know what I was talking about GSM. I don't, anyway, so not only are you good at that part, but you're good to be around. You know what I mean? There's an energy that people have and that energy, people want to be around positive energy. And I think that's like, so you're like a, you're like a good actor and you're a good clubhouse guy. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. I think yeah. that's what it is, you know, and that's a huge thing. And so I've thought like, if you've been in this business long enough, you have some talent, you have a degree of talent. So the talent is not the issue. The ability to play well with others is. I find that I want people to be like, oh, what's up, James? James is here. Oh my God. I didn't know you were in the show. Like, that's what I want. Right. I don't want it to be like, oh God. Oh, he's in this. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I had a period of my life, certainly, where I was the latter. And I think that was because I was so in my head about, do I belong here? Do I belong on the stage? Do I, why am I here? And people not hit out, but the energy that you put out is kind of a direct mirror to what's going on inside of you. So if my waters are really churning on the inside, like you will see that, like, I don't really hide that very well. So it's like, I have to try and calm myself as much as I can be in order to be in a room where, where I can have that positive energy. But that's work. It's hard for me. What do you love about acting? I'll start with what I like. What I like is knowing that if I have like eight shows in a week and I have maybe two of those shows that are like, I hit it. I hit it because I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't worried about my entrance, my exit, hitting this mark, not hitting that mark, being late for this line, whatever. I hit it. If I'm lucky, I get like maybe two of those out of a week. But when those happen, I really am on cloud nine because it's also, it kind of tells me, gosh, I'm really good at that. I did that really well. You know what I mean? Like it's cool yeah. to be able to pat myself on the back once or twice a week. It doesn't happen often, but I, well, it, it's really cool. And I'm sure that the audience feels more than two times a week that you are. Right. But you know how we're all in I our know. heads. Like if I feel like I did something really well, like I had a really good clean sheet, 
I was there. I wasn't technical. Like I was there. That's something I really, really like. What I love is the rehearsal room. I love how you have these people and they kind of, they all sort of know each other. They may have done shows together. Maybe one of them did a show with the other two years ago or something. And here we are in this room. There's like an energy of, we sort of kind of know of each other. We're familiar with each other's work, but we're not friends. We're not, we know each other. We're associates. And at the end of this thing, down the road, at the end of the play, a couple months from now, you might be associates again. Who knows? But in that in-between, like you become a family and it's a gradual thing and you can't rush it, right? Like you, you have to... Each day you come in, you learn a little bit more about, you know, what Cliff likes or what Alana doesn't like, when to talk to them, when not to talk to them, when to give them space, what this person enjoys doing, what I could talk about that person with, you know, at the next break, if I remember. And then the days build up and then you're in tech. And then that's when you're really spending all this great time with these people. And that's when you start to become a family and you become really good friends. And I know people will say, well, they're not really good friends of yours. I mean, you're going to be in a few months, you're going to be done with them. But in that period of time, you're seeing them six days out of the week for hours on end. And you talk and you chat and, and you get to know each other and you, you have inside jokes. And I didn't realize how much I loved that until going back to Raisin in the Sun in seventh grade. I got to spend all this time with these people. They were really awesome, amazing actors. And I felt like I was friends with them and I was in seventh grade and they're all in college, but I loved the energy. And when that ended, when that show ended, I cried. I, I bawled because I knew they'd all see each other again, but I wasn't going to see them again. And so it, it affected me then. And since then I've always dreaded the close of a show, because I know that that's the last time that I'm going to spend that much time with that particular group of people. I'll see them again in other shows, one, maybe two if I'm lucky, but never that group, never that group. I always have kind of a grieving process at the end, but that family, those friendships that you get, even in that brief amount of time is what I love. I love that too. And it's so amazing how you just fall in love with these people in a three month span and they can become some of your very close best friends for a really long time. Or like you said, you can never see them again, but the minute you do, there's like this connection that will never be lost. It's such an amazing experience. I imagine you probably have that and will have that for Chicago Med, just because... There's a little bit of that. I think it's less than theater. I, I don't know if I was a series regular, maybe I would feel that way, but there's just something about theater where I feel like there's less of a hierarchy than there is in oh, TV sure. and film. Sure, certainly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, you were, um, you had the injury for a while, right? I still, I've got my boot on still. Got your yeah. boot on. So, yeah. so you're going to have that. So you've been... You've been away from people. Since right? March. Yeah. Since March. When you see them at some point, there's going to be some love in that room. That's you know true. That. Like yeah. They're going to be so happy that you are back. There is a connection there, I bet, that has taken, really, in y'all's case, like years. Yeah. The people make it, you know? The friendships make it just so much fun. It's just an amazing feeling. That's the part I love. That's the part I love. How do you take care of yourself? Is that 
where your family comes in? Do you do things for yourself? I don't do enough. It's interesting because I have to be a lot more mindful of that, of, of, of not taking it for granted, the time that we kind of suddenly all have together, right? It used to be Kathy would go to school and then I would get Evan together and ready to go and walk him, you know, a block and a half over to school. And then I'd come home and I'd say, all right, so today, let's see, I'm going to do this, or maybe I'll do this. And then some days I'm just like, I'm just going to sit here and watch The Crown. But I, I had a lot of unstructured time that was to myself. And so then once all of us were together, all of us zooming all over the place, me down in here in the basement, Evan on the first floor, Kathy, her pseudo classroom is on our second floor. And so we're all zooming, right? You would think that just because we're all in the, in the house together, that we automatically spend more time together. But that's... We have to be mindful of that, I yeah. guess, because it's not it's, quality time necessarily. Yeah, it's really not. It's not quality time. It's, you know, with Evan, I'll, you know, I'm helping him do school stuff. And Kathy, I'm helping her, you know, when I can, but she's teaching her kindergartners. That's a crazy full time Zoom. <laughs> That's a podcast by itself. Like we have to really make the time and moments to kind of get together. And I took Evan out. It was really awesome. We went out to Thatcher Woods, which is kind of a forest preserve, kind of out by me in Oak Park. And we played catch and we walked around in the woods and we saw this huge buck with crazy antlers that got way too close to us, but that was still cool. And we picked up medium-sized sticks for our fire pits and it just really re-energized me and kind of filled up my spirit. And I need to do more things like that that are just completely not off the grid. I mean, we're right down the street from the parking lot. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a forest preserve, but it's just to get out. And I didn't realize how much I needed it until I was there. Oh, Yeah, nature's so healing. Yeah, so little things like that, you know, are, are, are very helpful. But that's what makes me a bit worried about winter is coming, so to speak. I and, know. And so the time that we would all spend a lot more outdoors, like we've done more fire pit nights, you know, this summer than we've ever done before. It's awesome. It's amazing. S'mores yeah. and all those things that are, you don't really think about. And then I had such an appreciation for them. Now, as it really starts to begin to get cold, we're going to have to find other creative ways to get out and drink some of that nature, you know? Yeah as it gets colder. Anything else you want to share? I think it's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine in California who was saying, you know, we need to like talk more about the times that things really don't go well, you know? Yeah. I think that it's easy to look at, it might be easy to look at me like on this awesome show and being a part of this really great theater and doing voiceover and all these things and feel like, oh yeah, he's really successful. He's really doing his thing or he's really making his way, you know, here. And it's tough. Like every day, every audition, every time that you think you really put it out there and you did amazing work and you didn't get called. Just today, as a matter of fact, I had an audition a couple weeks ago that I did and um, I thought I did okay with it. I, I thought I, I felt pretty good about it. And then my neighbor just told me, oh, yeah, they're doing um, this show and they're filming out at Dominican University and it's called whatever the show was. And I was like, oh, yeah, I read for that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I had a really good audition. And, you know, sometimes it's easy to say, well, and sometimes I do this, you know, that part just wasn't for me. It was for someone else. That part's going to be part of someone else's story. And 
part that I haven't read yet, but will read for her. That's going to be a part of the next chapter of my story at some point. And so I sometimes do that, and that's helpful. But I think that there's also the part where you do get down on yourself and you say, well, doggone it. I thought I thought that one was it. You know, I thought, yeah. not that I thought that part was going to shoot me to the stratosphere or whatever, but I thought I had a good shot at that one because I really did good work. And it's always a constant back and forth between that sadness or that grieving the loss of something that really wasn't yours and putting the spin on it that it really wasn't yours. It wasn't yours to have. And you'll know when it's yours, that time will come. You kind of move back and forth between those two things. But I think it's, I think there's nothing wrong with feeling bad because sometimes you just don't get it. Sometimes you do your best and it just doesn't work out. And even for me being on Fargo and doing these other things that I've been really blessed enough to do and, and have taken part in, even with all of that, I have tough auditions too. I have really bad choices too. I have really bad auditions that just, for whatever reason, they just don't work out. And it happens and I grieve. Even when they're good auditions. Even when they're good, that's true. Even when they're good auditions and they just don't work out. And and even though you know that 90% of the time, it literally has zilch to do with you. That 10%, you it eats at you. So still just, hurts. You know, I think it's important to recognize that that happens to everybody, like everyone, no matter how successful you may think them to be. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that. Because sometimes from the outside, it looks like, oh, you know, James has everything. He books everything. And you're like, no, I don't. I'm sad a lot. I get rejected a lot. (laughs) Do you always audition from Chicago, even when you do work outside? Did you ever leave Chicago? And if not, why? The only times that I've really auditioned outside of town was when I was on a gig already. When I was on tour for Mormon, you know, we spent four months in LA. And so I, but that, that just shows how hard this, this world is. Like I was at the Pantages doing a hit show for four months and I had three auditions. Wow. Three. And I was living in LA. And I remember at one point saying to Sam and Todd, you know, my agents over at Stewart, I said, guys, you, you said you're going to get me in some rooms. I was going to have some meetings. I was going to do all this stuff. You know, what happened? And they're like, we submitted you 33 times. <laughs> it, it wasn't because we weren't trying to get you into these rooms. And it just shows how much a glutton for punishment sometimes you have to be to be in this business, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I auditioned from from L.A. a bit. I auditioned when I was in New York a little bit when I was there for Superior Donuts for Steppenwolf in like 2009, 2010. We actually signed a lease to stay there for a year, no matter how long the show lasted, because I was like, you know what? How often am I in New York? I've got to try and, you know, give this a go. And so I auditioned there and I, I think I got check avails and a lot of being pinned and all that stuff. And I think I did one SVU. But what's funny is when I was on tour, the job that I would get usually brought me back to Chicago. Like I did, <laughs> I did four episodes of Betrayal. I did one other show. And I remember like, I literally had to leave town. That's what they say, right? You want to work in Chicago, of leave course. town. Um, or book a vacation. Exactly. Yeah. And so 
early on when I was on tour for Mormon, they literally had to fly me back into Chicago so I could work on Betrayal. And, oh, I was so salty because I remember one of the times I had a show that was like, I think they hired me for one day for that episode. But I I did five scenes <laughs> because they could only oh. have me on Monday. And so they didn't have to do a weekly because they only had to use me for one day. Oh my God. So I did, I think it was five scenes, one after the other, after the other, like crazy. I've worked on shows for 20 minutes and gotten paid a week. I worked on that show from sunup to two in the morning. And, and I, I can't believe that that wasn't negotiated even though it was one day for you to get a week. And it wasn't my only episode on the show. I'd done like, there were like three episodes. And Come on. they were like, I got one day. Never, I was like, I mean, look, it could be worse. I could have not been doing Book of Mormon. So, you know, you have to think of it that way, right? True. I had another gig, but I'll never forget that. I was so worn down. And it was like February. And mm. it was cold. And you we had to come filming, back to Chicago. We were filming like in, uh, you know, Lower Wacker. And it was, oh gosh. One of the scenes was with James Cromwell. And we'd do the scene and they'd say, his whole scene he spent in the car. And I had to keep going in and out of the car. And I was like, can't you guys change all that stuff and just let yeah. me stay in here? You're only paying me for a day. You should have had hazard pay. You know? Anyway. Yeah. So yeah, I've thought about that. And I've had people who've said to me, you need to start auditioning in LA. You need to start whatever. I remember talking to Marlene, as a matter of fact, Marlene Barrett. And she said, you can work. I'd said to her, I'm so concerned about moving. I don't want to, you know, I have a house, you know, we've got our child. He's, but she's like, what are you talking about? She's like, you don't have to move. You can still live here. You can go out there and you can audition and you can do the work and then you come back home. She's like, I don't know what's going on. And she, when she said it, it sounded so much more simpler. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Scott but, and I yeah. talk all the time, even, even not just about work, but just to be able to leave Chicago for the winter for a few months, not even to audition, just to. Oh gosh, I dream of that. Oh, I dream of that. Where would you guys move if you had a second house? If you were snowbirds and you wanted to just leave from November to April, where would you be? Somewhere that's like a cool city, but also warmer and, and maybe has some of the business there. What about you? I can't decide, except it's got to be somewhere with water. I just yes. love water. I like love I, water. And playing with Evan in the water is just, and particularly like in the ocean, like salt water, he just... It is the best thing. It is so calming to just see him just, is the word frolicking? Literally just running yeah. around in the water. Like I just, Kathy and I will just sit there and just watch him just. And also Evan is like, he'll talk to anyone. So he'll make friends literally like in 25 seconds of seeing another kid. So just watching him like hold court and become the mayor of whatever beach we're in is just awesome so wherever it would be even even florida i'd, I'd yeah. even do florida yeah. now that you say the water that is really important to us so it'd probably have to be somewhere near water 
we live a couple blocks from the lake now. We just bought a condo last year. And this summer we were on the lake just running or walking or biking almost every single day. That's awesome. That's so awesome. Yeah. It's so peaceful. I've thought about that move. I've always said to Kathy, the only way that I'd ever want to entertain anything like that is if we had a gig. Like, I, I don't want to move somewhere to get a gig. I want to move somewhere because I have a gig. Same. And And even then, I don't know, because I have a friend of mine who just moved back and he had gigs. He was doing really well. And just this last season, huge, like, tent pole show. And now they're back. Even when it seems like everything is going so well, whether it's the career, whether it's like closed cramped quarters, whether it's all the kids, whether it's whatever it is, you know, it's like even being successful doesn't guarantee stability. Totally. And now for part two, where James was in New York filming an episodic and we dive deeper into Fargo. Hey. Hi, how are you? I'm all right. It's weird being here yeah. away from home and my family and all that. Is this your first time filming away from home during the pandemic? It is. In fact, Courtney, I think it's my first time like filming away from home. Really? I've been so lucky. Fargo was local. Chicago Med, of course, local. Yeah. SUV, but your family was living with they you. Were, that's right. And I think that one was, that was in 2010, maybe. And I think Evan wasn't even around yet. It was just Kathy and me living free yeah. and in the wild, you know, <laughs> in New York. Yeah. You're in New York filming an episodic. We won't say which one yet. Right Or on. can we? Yeah, I don't, I, I never know those things. So I guess I'll keep mums the word, but it'll, you know, it'll be out like within a month. I think they move pretty quick on these, right? Well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although we've only aired three episodes of Chicago Med and we've been filming since October. Wow. I will say that they are very, and I imagine Med is the same way. I get tested every day I shoot. I get tested mm -hmm. on the days that I don't shoot because like today I got tested this morning and I don't shoot this part of the show until Wednesday, but they, yeah. they still need to bank those negatives, which is great. Right. Yeah. It's great. It makes me feel safe when I'm on set. Yeah. It's probably the safest place in town because, you know, everyone has been tested that day. Like literally yeah. everyone from the person who does your makeup to the, the grip to the boom mic guy, they have all been tested that day. So that's very cool. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, it's cool. It's great. I walk uh, every day or every other day and, and um Prospect Park, which is just a beautiful park and it's peaceful. And, you know, most people are masked, which is great. You just are able to give people a lot of space while you, yeah. you walk and be with your thoughts. You know, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Poor Kathy uh, yeah. at home with Evan yeah. Yeah, <laughs> working and <laughs> it's tough because I mean, I, I think I mentioned, you know, she's a teacher and Evan's in school and they're both doing it mm -hmm. remote. And it's a tough time because now, you know, you've got vaccines and mm -hmm. just because you're allowed to take it doesn't mean that it's there for you to take. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, a lot of teachers right now all over the country, I'm sure, are dealing with that. Being able to be in that group that's allowed to take these vaccines and yet they're just not being enough available to go around yet. So it's it's a very frustrating time, I think, to be a teacher. My friends and I have had the conversation of like, oh gosh, what if we get offered it before someone who really needs it and 
my friend sent out an article that was like, if you get offered the vaccine, take it because there's no saying that if you turn it down, that it will go to someone who needs it more than you do. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. It could point. even be thrown away. Yeah. Yeah. So just take because it. Because of the temperature and how cool, you know, all that it mm -hmm. makes perfect sense. Take it. No, I will take it. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> it may not be till, you know, May or June, but I'll, I'll right. take it. <laughs> well, I wanted to bring you back because... Fargo hadn't finished when we interviewed the first right. time in November and your character just grew so much during that show. So I want to talk about that. But first, I want to talk about your audition because I had AJ links on the podcast and she talked about how crazy the audition process was. So was there anything different about this audition than other auditions that you had? I don't know what she may have told you, but it was very surreal in that we were reading to tape with AJ and and there was no script. Mm. Like they didn't have a script yet. I think Noah Hawley, the creator or the writer was still working on it. And so he had us read a scene and this isn't speaking out of school now, the, the season's over, but he had us read a scene from a prior season. Uh, <laughs> and everyone who's going for, you know, the canon crew, I think was reading this scene and reading the same character. Wow. And I am a huge fan of Fargo. So, so I knew the scene. You knew it. I knew exactly. I looked at it and I was like, well, I know that scene and that's not in, <laughs> that's not going to be in this season because I saw this season. I saw this scene. It was really good. And so of course you're trying not to sound like right. the person who, you know, did an incredible job on that scene and who's you have to make it your own exactly whose portrayal is so imprinted in your brain that you you know you're you're trying to run away from it but he was so good that you end up which season was it it was season two it was season okay. two yeah and i ended up doing that scene and and i said well you know i probably sounded more like this guy than i wanted to but whatever aj you know they were so nice and you know directing me uh doing such a great job of just kind of keeping me kind of true to the scene and not veering too far into what I saw. And it was the strangest thing because I remember I was going to leave for New York to do Book of Mormon for six weeks. Someone was on an emergency medical leave. Oh. And I knew that I was being considered for Fargo, but I wasn't really quite sure. And that was such a weird time because I, I remember the day because we took Evan to camp and I got a phone call from my agents and they're like, uh, are you, are you sitting down? And I was like, well, I'm driving. <laughs> so yeah, I guess I am. Um, and I knew it was kind of crazy because I mean, you know, the, the stereotypical when there's like all the agents, then it's gotta be something good. Cause yeah. Phone or whatever. And, and they said, they, they want you and they're willing to, um, they're willing to meet our rate and make you a, a regular for the season. And <gasps> I was just stunned. Like wow. I just, my mouth dropped open and I, I think I did have to pull over. I was, yeah, I, I would have shocked. So, you know, so you go into the whole thing with, you know, this kind of excitement, but nerves because you didn't really read a lot. Well, you didn't read anything of what your character is saying. So right. you know, how do you know who you're playing? Exactly. So they, they gave me the character. Um, and I think these were parts of the canon crew that Noah had already kind of formed and he was just kind of writing, but you know, he'd seen our tapes, so he knew what we were all bringing. And, and I think he wrote 
you know, kind of to our strengths to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I do remember showing up and seeing Chris Rock and Schwartzman and Ben Whitshaw. And I'm like, gosh, that guy's cue from Bond. I love James Bond. He's, yeah. So you're thinking about all that stuff. Oh, and he's, you know, my, my kid's favorite movie, one of my, his favorite movies is Paddington and he does the voice for Paddington. And, oh, you yeah. You know, so you're like thinking of all these things and then you're like, you know what? Nope. I got to just focus in on what I'm doing and I can do my star loving thing later. So, um, (laughs) so we did it and it was, it was an amazing experience. That's really cool. Your character. Mm -hmm. Opal Rackney. Mm -hmm. People die in the show. We won't say who, (laughs) right. You know, that probably affects what characters move up in the story. Sure. Was your character supposed to grow as much as it did? Or was it like they really got to know you throughout the season and love your work? Right. I mean, even though certain characters don't make it, of course, like, you know, when you get hired as a regular for these things, like that was what was so cool about having so many regulars in this show. You know, all of us could put on IMDb that we were in all 10 episodes or 11 episodes, even though most of us weren't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, and because, yeah. you know, you're not trying to give away anything. And so they're credited for right. all of them. And I think there may have been the occasional shift here and there as far as who gets to kill who. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that there's also with my character, Opal, you know, he's he's probably the oldest next to Dr. Senator, you know, played by incredible Glenn Turman. Amazing. You know, so... Should anything happen to Dr. Senator, you know, chances are I'm going to, you know, step up. Like I would be, I guess, next in line, if not to be an equal partner or whatever, to at least be some sort of a a confident, whatever that word is. Um, Confident. Yeah, there you go. Uh, To a degree uh, with Loy Cannon, with Chris's character. That was kind of cool because everything that I did, I was basically Chris's body man anyway. So, you know even if I wasn't saying anything in a scene, if you saw Chris, you pretty much saw me. Like I was pretty right. much, unless he was with his family or having a one-on-one with Dr. Senator, I was pretty much always in the room. And so it was kind of fun to watch Chris work and to watch him just develop into this amazing role as the shooting continued. And, you know, I think back to the first day that we shot when we were doing promos down in moments, Illinois, <laughs> um, the, the first, uh, it was, it was part of that, the, the trailer, but like kind of that first episode and seeing where we all were that day and how we all ended and the richness of our characters and how they all kind of developed from the people who yeah. spoke a lot to the people who pretty much stood by looking mildly threatening, uh, like me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but such strong characters, whether you spoke or not. Yeah, what was cool is like, you know, you think of Fargo, most of those characters that are in that, that he peoples, um, like he's just got such an eye for casting, Noah does, you know, and so, Mm -hmm. you know, you have these guys who are always around, and they don't really say much, but they do stuff, but they're, Mm -hmm. they don't really do a lot of speaking, but somehow he has managed to people these chapters of Fargo with these characters that have little to say and yet leave a very strong imprint on your mind as you watch, as you experience the show. Were you in the, I call it the Wizard of Oz episode? No, 
No, but it's so funny though. Cause I remember seeing the preview for it. That was the only episode I wasn't in this season. Okay. And, um, I remember I had done, I can't remember what I did in the prior episode and someone said, yeah, no, that was great. And I was like, yeah, well, wait till you see the next one because it's going to be awesome. And we didn't see any of it. Yeah. That's another thing about Fargo because everything is so secretive, like yeah. no one talks. And so when someone does talk, you might snatch a little here and maybe you'll snatch a little there, but you don't really get a piece of what it is. I just knew that there was a huge tornado coming. That's what I heard. Did you know it was going to be in black and white? No, no, I did not know. And so, you know, to see that, uh, and I've seen that used in a couple of series since Fargo, the the black and white, mm-hmm. but with, you know, the touch of color that comes when you yeah. least expect it. And it's so effective when you see WandaVision. It. There you go. You know yeah. exactly what I was talking yeah. about. So it's like, you know, <laughs> when she picks up that airplane or whatever yeah. from the bushes, it's just like, whoa, what is that? And, and Pleasantville did that before. Right, right. And yeah. so there, it's such a great device, like when it's it done well and, uh, it was really, well, also Rodney, who who played uh, mm. his son, is just so amazing. He's so I think amazing. I taught him when he was like six years old. Did you really? Yeah. He's <laughs> at the green room. He's so adorable. He's just a great kid, right? And Yeah. But it's so funny, you know, when we had the pause because. Yeah, COVID. Yeah. It's like, where were you on <laughs> March 16th. Yeah, or March 13th. Uh, March 13th, right. I can tell you where I was the night before because we were we were shooting and Noah was there and he was like, I may not see you guys for a while. Oh, he knew. Yeah. And we were so close. We were so close to the finish line. We only had like maybe three more yeah. weeks of shooting and we had to stop. But I was on Check Avail for the last episode. Really? Yeah, I didn't get it, but oh. I was really excited. Wow. Yeah. It <laughs> It was just such a weird time thinking of the the pause in between March and when we got back together, which was like late August, because, you know, when you're an adult, you're an adult and you're going to look how you look. But then these kids, you know, they, yeah. they grow and you can tell there's a difference in Rodney from the episode prior to the COVID pause yeah. to when he comes back. He's grown into like a, a young man, you know, I, now that you say that, yes. Yeah. He looks very different, very different when he's lying in that bed, trying to be small. Yeah. And you're like, I don't think I like, I think I probably picked up on it, but I yeah. didn't think that it wasn't supposed to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true. Like that sort of makes sense. Like based on his journey and it makes sense that he would look different. The world yeah. would, would be and the world would look at him differently too. Yeah. But it was mm. just such a, it's one of those, you know, you, you do shows and you, or a TV show or a play or something. And you're like, is this the top? Is this, where, <laughs> is this the mountain? Is, do I get to this point? And then it all kind of starts to slide. Like, you, I, no. but you always think of that. And, and I remember I where you're like, man, I hope this isn't what they write in my, my <laughs> or, you know, um, but that said, it was just a, just a, a great experience. And it's really great when people whose work you admire and that you look up to turn out to actually be nice people. There were so many Chicago people yes. in that show. And then like, I guess LA and or New York, or was there any sense of difference between anybody or was that, it was just all one big family? 
it was kind of one big family. Like, of course, the Cannon Boys, all of us except for Leon, you know, we're locals. So, you mm-hmm. know, Corey Hendricks and Matthew Elam and we're in town. There's that sense of kind of a common denominator, a common vocabulary of Chicago, you know, actors. But that said, we were all so separate. It was rare that the Italians and mm-hmm. the Cannons crossed. Yeah, We had to actually make efforts to do that. I think there was one time where we all got together, a lot of us did, and went out to dinner at some Italian restaurant at some point. Nice. And there were times where like this would cross into my theater life, where Ben Whitshaw came and saw a show at Steppenwolf. And it was interesting because they were able to really kind of see like parts of Chicago theater, which is really cool. And we tried to mention other storefront theaters and places that they really needed to go and see things. And sometimes they would take us Mm -hmm. up on it. And it was really cool that they trusted our insight as far as that and realized that there's so much more, as much as I love Steppenwolf, there's so much more to Chicago theater than Steppenwolf and Goodman and, you know, Chicago Shakes and places like that. So it was great that they were able to try and see different shows and things like that. But it was just a great group. It's so easy because when you're meeting people who are of a certain level, like you're always trying to find, oh yeah, but they did this or they didn't do that or whatever. And, but they were just great human beings. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, I love when it's that happens. really, it's awesome when you meet people who you, whose work you admire and they actually turn out to be nice people. Yeah. Especially if you're working so close with them, like mm-hmm. Chris, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is there anything else you want to share? It's one of those, it happened. It took so long to shoot because of COVID and yet it happened like that, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I'll never forget it. I'll I'll never forget it. And not only the performers and, and Noah, but it was such a great thing for the people who, who work here, who I'm used to seeing on other shows who work in makeup or hair or Mm -hmm. who do camera. That's what's so great about things being shot in Chicago and being a Chicago actor. At some point you see all these people and you don't see them once. You see them multiple times because they all work on different shows. And it was always wonderful to go into the room and see someone who you knew and you're like, oh my God, you're on this too. That's like, that's the best feeling. Where can people find you? I've got like Instagram and Twitter. I'm Javimir1971. Uh, that's my handle for both of those. I'd love to say that I have a website or a podcast or any other way that people could reach me. But that's pretty much it. <laughs> Where can people watch you? Fargo on FX. Go to Fargo, your Hulu or whatever, and you can catch up. Awesome. And is there a favorite film or TV show that you were in that you want people to go, you know, to Netflix or Hulu and check you out in? Um, You know, Boss, I'll always have great memories of, though that was, you know, nine, eight or nine years ago. So, although oddly enough, I feel like it could have happened last year. Uh, yeah. A lot of the, the... Maybe there'll be a remake. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Boss was great. I think that's a, a stars show, but I think you can Netflix that. You might be able to Amazon it as well. I will say Princess Sid was one of my favorite experiences, like filmmaking experiences, period. Um, and that was Stephen Cohn. As with Knives and Skin, was just an amazing film experience. Both of those movies I highly recommend. Princess Sid. I, and I just love Stephen Cohn's work. I watched Henry Gamble's Birthday Party recently, and then I watched Princess Sid. He's just a great, great filmmaker and chooses the best Chicago actors to be in his films. One of my favorite actors, like, in town, period, are Rebecca Spence, who's just... 
She's just incredible. Rebecca, who I actually did The Crucible with, my first show uh, as an ensemble member, and she came in and became Goody Proctor because Sally Murphy went to Broadway. And so Rebecca came, and that's the first time that she and I worked together. And to this day, one of my most amazing experiences was sharing the stage with her. She's just a stunner. She's incredible. Well, you're incredible too. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. This is so much fun. We get to catch up. This was good. No, honestly, I I will keep making snarky comments and likes or whatever they do on Instagram nowadays. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's been a pleasure, really. Thank you. Thanks, James. I will hopefully see you on set soon. Right on. Fingers crossed. Take care. You too. Bye, James. Thank you, James Vincent Meredith, for your time and for just being you. Please reach out to us and let us know how this episode affected you. I've been getting lots of private messages letting me know how much you love the podcast, and it really keeps me going. So thank you. If you found it helpful, I'm sure someone you know would. So please share it with them. Before you leave, head over to CourtneyRue.com and sign up for VIP updates so you can be the first to know about events happening and get a free gift from me. Thank you to my team listed in the show notes. And as always, thank you for listening, for subscribing, for leaving a review. It means so much to me. I hope you've been inspired. I hope you learned something. And I hope you feel better than you did before you were listening. Be your best you.